Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knudsen had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to today's episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and we're going to change it up on the show a little bit today. We're still going to have our Civil Engineering Podcast Project of the Week segment, where today we're going to highlight the Great Pyramid. However, after that, instead of interviewing an experienced civil engineer, I'm actually going to provide some coaching and guidance to a young civil engineer who's trying to decide whether or not to pursue a PhD. The show notes for today's show will be located at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number four. The show notes will contain a summary of the key points that we discuss here in the show, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books that I might mention here during the show. And again, that's civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number four. All right, let's jump right into it. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Now it's time for the Civil Engineering Project of the Week segment, and today we're going to be discussing the Great Pyramid. This is a segment of the show where we talk about interesting civil engineering projects, past, present, or future. And of course, we want you to submit your projects at civilengineeringpodcast.com, whether it's a project you're working on, have worked on in the past, or any project out there that you might know of that you want us to research. Send it in to us. We might just research it or myself or Chris Knutz and my co-host might actually go on site and visit the project if it's possible for us to do that. All right, so today's project, again, it's the Great Pyramid in Giza, Egypt. The Great Pyramid has a height of 481 feet, or at least it did when it was initially built. As far as the project budget goes, the true cost of the project is unknown for obvious reasons. I mean, this was constructed a very long time ago. But if you were to reconstruct the pyramid today using trucks, cranes, helicopters, etc., the project would require approximately 2,000 laborers and cost about $5 billion. That's billion with a B. And that's according to Jean-Pierre Houdin, a French architect who has helped to create a virtual model of the ancient construction system. It would also take five years to complete. So it's a five-year, $5 billion construction project if you did this today, which I think is kind of mind-blowing. Was this project over or under budget? So obviously, again, we're talking about a long time ago. Based on some markings in one of the interior chambers of the pyramid that named the gang and a reference to the fourth dynasty Egyptian pharaoh Khufu, Egyptologists believe that the pyramid was built as a tomb for the pharaoh over a 10 to 20 year period of construction, concluding around 2560 BC. So again, we really don't have budget information over under budget, but just think about that. It was done over a 20 year period, and we'll get into the details on that as we get into the project a little bit more here. So the Great Pyramid is the largest of actually three pyramids in Giza. It's just an amazing work of engineering. As I said earlier, it was built over a 20-year period. Some people believe that it was built by slaves. Other believes that that's not true. It's actually been found that 100,000 people worked on the structure 
for three months out of each of the 20 years. And that was during the Nile's annual flood period when it was pretty much impossible for people to farm and therefore most of the population was unemployed. So we talk about seasonal construction. It was three months of the year for 20 years. They had 100,000 people building this pyramid. And it was built as a tomb for the pharaoh because he was just really well liked. He, he provided good food and clothing for his workers. Everybody uh, kindly remembered him through folk tales, and he's just been talked about for centuries. The sides of the pyramid are oriented to the four cardinal points of the compass, and the length of each side at the base is 755 feet. The faces rise at an angle of approximately 51 degrees, and the original height, as I said before, was 481 feet. Now, here's a pretty interesting tidbit. The pyramid was constructed using around 2.3 million limestone blocks, each of the blocks weighing an average of two and a half tons. Some of the blocks weighed as much as 16 tons. Could you imagine that? 2.3 million limestone blocks. Try managing that project, huh? The biggest design, I guess you could say design construction challenge for a project like this from what the research indicates is the size of it. I mean, for obvious reasons. I mean, just think about how big this was. 2.3 million stone blocks at that two and a half ton average. And and some of the blocks were, you know, deep, had to be dug into the ground. So, I mean, this is something that really took a tremendous amount of effort. And actually, <clears throat> the height of the the pyramid when built would have been very close to the Washington Monument in D.C., or at least, you know, not exactly that height, but close to that. And, and remember, that Washington, D.C. monument was built uh, almost 5,000 years later. The, the average weight of the blocks used in the pyramid and the monument is roughly the same, but the Great Pyramid is made up of 65 times as many blocks as the Washington Monument. Just think about that. I was just at the Washington Monument uh, recently when we had the Engineering Career Success Summit in D.C., and we went there and we, we toured it. 65 times as many blocks as in this Great Pyramid. Now, written accounts of Egyptian engineering methods are scarce for obvious reasons, and there's been a debate for centuries about how the Great Pyramid was actually built. There are many alternative and contradictory theories have been proposed regarding the pyramid's construction techniques. There is a lot of disagreement around whether the blocks were dragged, lifted, or even rolled into place. There are also a lot of questions concerning the methods by which they were placed in position, like literally laid in position. So it, it's a fascinating project to think about how that construction was put into place. We just don't have any factual evidence of it. And as far as the benefits to society go, I think everyone would agree that the biggest benefit to society today is that there are millions of people that visit the Great Pyramid, um, tourists that visit it, and they're just drawn by you know, how fabulous the the pyramid is, the the kind of structure that it is. So we will include in the show notes for this show uh, at least one photo of the pyramid, and we'll also link uh, to the sources that we use to get this information. All right, that concludes our Civil Engineering Project of the Week segment for today's episode. Again, if you're working on or have worked on an interesting and or challenging civil engineering project, we'd love to feature it on the show. Please submit your project at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. You know, essentially, you like the idea of 
driving kind of the policy, the regulations of the industry rather than just having to react to them and to have to be, you know, just going about following them. You want to be able to have a role in them, a role in creating them. I think the important thing is always to uncover the why, you know, of that question. Honestly, it's kind of a 50-50 mixed bag. Some people love it and absolutely recommend it. And some people are like, no, don't do it. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing now. It's not worth it. So... All right, now it's time for this week's civil engineering conversation. And this segment of the episode so far, we've interviewed kind of experienced professionals. We've heard a little bit about their careers and some advice that they have for civil engineers out there. This week, we're taking a little bit of a different approach. I was contacted by um, a young environmental engineer, Eileen, who I have with me here on the line, and she has kind of some challenges that she's dealing with in her career. So to try to do something a little bit different this week, I'm going to bring on Eileen, maybe try to help her out, give her some coaching on some of the challenges that she's facing. Welcome, Eileen. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. No problem. Tell us, uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and kind of your, your career up to this point. Uh, well, so I graduated in 2013, and I did a combined BS, MS in environmental engineering. So I currently have a master's degree, um, and I've been working since then. I spent about a year and a half at a firm in Baltimore doing um, water resource type work, um, but the firm was small, and I realized I wanted more growth. So then I recently, about three months ago, moved to a larger firm that has a lot more opportunities. Um, but about that time when I was switching, I was starting to think if um, I wanted to take a different direction, maybe towards PhD, academia. Um, so that's kind of where I am now. Okay. So this bigger company that you took a role with, is it um, the same type of work, water resources? Uh, no, I'm actually doing remediation type work now. Um, and I'm trying to, they do have water resources still, so I'm doing a little bit of both actually kind of okay all right so you're doing a little bit of both which is good when you're young i mean you're getting exposed to different things which i think is important so in your application to come on the show you talked a little bit about this idea which you just alluded to about you know thinking a different direction and i know in the application you said maybe a phd um something along you know the world of academia um, so talk to me a little bit about your, uh, your thoughts there. What, what kind of prompted those thoughts? Uh, so originally I was interested in that path because I like the idea of research. I like the idea of having a hand in advancing my field. Uh, I guess part of the reason is a lot of the times during work, I would see all the processes we did were um, implemented and discovered by someone doing research. So it made me more interested in that side of it, being one of the people that decided how things were done instead of just doing it. Um, also, I've always enjoyed teaching, so that kind of played into the professor side of it. Okay, uh, one of my concerns, though, was is I had talked to people who had gone down that route, and one, I know there's an overabundance of PhDs, so if I did, it's a hard direction, but also that if I realized it wasn't the right fit, that it actually could hurt your career if you wanted to come back into industry. Um, what I've read is there's actually not a significant increase in either job satisfaction or pay for people with PhDs that come back into the typical engineering field, and also that it's almost even harder to get a job sometimes. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, 
first of all, it's really good that you kind of did your research on that and you that you've uncovered those things because, you know, I, I do agree with you. I mean, I don't know that those are facts, but if those are true, then I could see how those could be obstacles if you had to make a decision to come back into, into the civil environmental engineering world. So let's talk, I guess, a little bit about this decision. You explained already that, you know, essentially you like the idea of driving kind of the policy, the regulations of the industry rather than just having to react to them and to have to be, you know, just going about and following them. You want to be able to have a role in them, a role in creating them, which which I think is pretty, pretty great. Um, and then you also recommended that you like teaching. So those are a couple of really obviously things that fall in line with the PhD. Is there um, anyone that you know that has done this or is there anyone that you talked to about this like before you kind of started thinking about this or after you started thinking about this or has it just kind of so far been yourself? Um, yes, I have I have a few friends that are going through the PhD and I have talked to um, professors from my, the college I went to who obviously have gone through and are now in academia. And honestly, it's kind of a 50-50 mixed bag. Some people love it and absolutely recommend it. And some people are like, no, don't do it. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing now. It's not worth it. So hmm, that's interesting. Different perspectives. So tell me this. It, let's just say that, you know, we talked tonight for a little while. You end up making some kind of decision, whether it's tonight or within the next year, and you take some action. And in five years from now, we're having another conversation and you're telling me like, oh, Anthony, you know what? My career is just going great. This is just wonderful. I'm really enjoying it. I love what I'm doing. What would have to happen in the next five years for you to say that to me? Doesn't I, have to be exact situation, mm -hmm. but you know, you could just throw words out. What has to happen? I guess one of the things that I've been struggling with, with engineering sometimes is I feel very disconnected from seeing the work. Um, so I, you know, do this design and then maybe two years later, someone else might do it. There's no as direct, I did this and now I can see it benefiting somebody right away. Um, so I guess with the PhD direction, knowing no research that's still there, but at least with teaching, it's more the hands-on, I can directly work with students and see them advance. Um, I guess that's kind of something I'm looking so, for. So tell me more about the disconnect. Explain it to me a little bit more. So is it because of the field you're in that you don't see immediate results or? Yes, I guess so. Um, like give me an example, like you do something and then you don't see it right away. Like what, what would that look like? Uh, well, I guess so most of the design work we do, it, it's, I guess I'm interested in some way of more directly helping people and seeing that happen. Um, so I guess another side of this, one of the reasons I was interested in a PhD is I've also looked into possibilities of having careers with kind of the United Nations or USAID and a lot of people in those top positions that um, are doing the work I'm interested in have PhDs. So I kind of was looking at people with careers that I found interesting and saw that they had PhDs. And that's one of the things that kind of made me think about it being an option. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes, yeah. that makes sense to me. So basically you kind of figured out where you might want to go and you're looking at what other people have used to get there essentially. Yes. Okay. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about this idea of helping people. You know, what is it about that that you that 
that you want that to be part of what you do on a regular basis? Uh, well, I guess so. If I just have free time and I don't have to worry about, you know, a career, making money, surviving, um, one of the main things I do is volunteer. And in college, I did a lot with Engineers Without Borders. Um, so that's the type of work, I guess, I find most fulfilling in my daily life. But, you know, rent, food, <laughs> all those things need to happen. So it's kind of trying a way to balance out the two. Okay. So, so essentially, if you go the PhD route, that's kind of essentially a job where you can do that on a more regular basis where you're still going to get paid, get compensated, but you're going to have the ability to help, you know, help people in a way where I guess it's more, it's something that you see more and it's more real because you're actually, there's people there and you're actually teaching them, you're watching them grow. Is that kind of? Yeah. And I guess also I tend to like more interaction with people and I find with the traditional engineering, I spend a lot of time at a computer and I would like to have more time in my daily job where I just interact with people on a regular basis. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, one of the things that I always try to do when I talk to someone in this situation where they've identified that they possibly want to make a change in their career, mm -hmm. you know, like a shift paths. And in this case, you're not necessarily like leaving the industry. You'd just be taking kind of a different role in the industry. I think the important thing is always to uncover the why, you know, of that question. And for me, what it sounds like from asking you these questions is the why for you is essentially you want to help people. I mean, everything you told me, you want to help people and you want it to be more, I don't want to say real in that when you're an engineer, you're not helping people because you are. It's just something that you can see and feel more every day, essentially. You want to have that connection with people every day where you might be talking to people more and teaching them and helping them instead of just being on a computer and doing a design plan where, you know, at the end of the day, maybe 10 years from now, both of those things are going to help a lot of people. It's just that you want the kind of day-to-day -day interaction where you're seeing, feeling, helping people, um, but still being able to survive and, you know, living and, you know, <laughs> paying rent and doing doing all that stuff. So so what I, what I would say to you is that what you've basically... What, what's become obvious to me is that essentially what you want to do every day is help people and interact with people and, you know, kind of improve your industry and the world around it through those actions, which is good because what that, what that identifies is like that's essentially what you want to do. Now, you've identified one way to do that as a PhD program, which very well, I, I mean, I agree with you, that probably is one way to do it. The only thing I would challenge you to think about is it's probably not the only way to do it. Like, you know, there's probably other avenues you could do this. What? I don't know exactly what they are. If uh, if there's engineers out there that are listening that want to help Eileen, you can certainly email me at afasano at engineeringcareercoach.com and I can pass the information along from her. That'd be great. But but I think what I, what I want you just to understand is that while the PhD is an option, there might be something else. And, and I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but, um, you know, because you did you did bring up some challenges about the the PhD, right? Yes. Like if you try it and it doesn't work out. So maybe there's an alternative route that you can try before that. The other thing too that, that you know, made me think a little bit is when you talked about working for an organization like a NATO, you know, or like one of these organizations where you've identified a lot of people that had that credential. I would, you know, I'd, I'd ask you again, you know, what is it about the job, like working at a NATO or an organization like that, that interests you? Okay. Um, well, I guess the, just, uh, the main reason is, um, well, so I guess I feel 
those organizations don't, they can just do the work a lot of times. It's not with, I'm in consulting now, so there's a lot of, um, you know, trying to please the client and make sure everything matches while, I guess, organizations like the UN and United um, USAID are just, here's a problem, let's solve it. So you feel like it'd be like a less pressure in that situation, less pressure to deliver, less pressure to, um, you know, just not as much of a pressure-filled situation, basically. Yes, and not as always having to answer to the client. Okay. Not as client-driven. Yes. Okay, so that makes the picture a little bit more clear. So essentially now, as we continue to paint the picture, you like the ability to solve problems and help people and improve your industry, really essentially improve the world because your industry is civil and environmental. And you want to do it in an atmosphere where you can really interact with people on a regular basis and it's not as um, client-driven necessarily. We don't have to necessarily answer to a client. You can help people. So um, you've kind of identified both NATO, or I'm just using the word NATO, but an organization like that, or PhD or like an academic institution as two potential opportunities to achieve that goal. Is that accurate? Yes. And it just so happens that the NATO position, a lot of people that have it have have the PhD, which kind of, you know, somehow ties those two together. Um, so my one recommendation to you would be, you know, assuming that a NATO-type organization is one solution and a PhD is another solution, I would try the NATO route first without the PhD, without, like, you know, the many years of going to get your PhD and the many, many, all the money invested in it and all the challenges that you presented to me, which was, you know, I might not be able to go back, is why not try that other one first? I mean, sure, people might come back to you and say, well, listen, you can't get this job without a PhD, but then at least you know, well, okay, I definitely got to go the PhD route if I want to work for one of these organizations. Who knows? You might, you know, you might get a job and then you might say, oh, wow, so I got, I've, now I've got this job that's not client-driven. Um, I'm able to help people. I'm able to have an impact. And I don't need my PhD, so let me see how it goes. And if, if you get into that job and then you're like, you know what, I still want the daily interaction with students, I still want to help them, then you can make that decision. The The problem with doing it the other way around is obviously once you go into the PhD program, you're kind of locked in for a long time. Yes. And the engineers that I have coached, I've coached several engineers that are in the midst of the program that say to me, well, I don't know if this is the right program for me. You know, I'm not, I'm nervous that I don't need a PhD, that I'm doing this and I shouldn't be. And that's a little bit of a tougher situation because they've sacrificed this time already and money. Whereas you, you might can try to do that without going that route and then, and then, you know, try it after that. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So that that's that would be I guess one my my main recommendation takeaways, and I think the other thing just to remember, kind of as we round it out here is, whenever you want to make a change, and really this applies to any of the listeners, understand why you're seeking that change, and if you understand why you're seeking that change, then you can realize that there's probably more than one path to get you there. Right, you may have identified one that popped up in your mind, like the, this PhD, but it yes. may not be the only path. Okay. Yeah. Right. So take time to look at all the options. Yeah, take time to look at all the options and and it, I, and you know and approach them 
probably with the one that's less risk first, right? Like the like just applying for a job at like a NATO is not a lot of risk. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is you don't get it, right? Yes. Whereas if you get into a PhD program and you're committed and you've got you take out a loan or you start you know whatever the case may be and then you get into that program, there's a lot more at stake now because you've already started this whole process. Number one, like you said, if I can't go back to the engineering career because of this, it could delay that because the companies might not want to take me back. That's a risk. The other risk is you know you might feel like I'm too far in and you might just go through the program and it's not useful to you. There's a lot more risk with it. All right, so. Do you do you feel better now or? Yes, I do. <laughs> Thank okay. you. That helped. <laughs> All right, good. All right, so we're going to wrap up the civil engineering conversation for this week. I want to thank Eileen for coming on. And if you're interested in coming on the podcast, you can visit civilengineeringpodcast.com or you can send me an email at afasano at engineeringcareercoach.com and tell me about a challenge that you're facing in your civil engineering career and we can have you on the show and hopefully we can help you. That's what this show is all about. So until next week, I wish you all the best in your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.